Welcome to the Midwest Nice Podcast, the show with honest political discourse dipped in ranch. This is your host, John Flynn. Today I'm joined by Amy Livka, Lauren Kaufman, Mario Brown Fallon, and special guest Evelyn Maidlow. Keep your accent strong and the punch key close by, because you're going to need it. Let's get the show started. back to the Midwest Nice Podcast. I'm John Flynn, and I'm joined again by Lauren Kaufman, Amy Lipka, Mariel Brown-Fallon. Today, a very special guest, our very own Evelyn Maidlow. Hi, guys. Oh, I guess I should have hit the drum roll before I introduced you. It's still just as good. Uh, Evelyn Maidlow, a working political operative and former field organizer for the Hillary Clinton campaign for president in Pennsylvania. An all-around nice person and friend to many. Close friend. Close friend. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. We're happy, happy to, to have, have you. you. Um, so yeah, uh, the reason that Evelyn is on today, besides that she's such a great person, is that uh, it's getting closer and closer to, uh, I guess, crunch time for the election season and the midterms. And I'm sure that all of the field workers and field organizers in the world right now are really hating their lives and getting into uh, the 100-hour work weeks. Um, something that was unknown to me before I got into working in politics. So we wanted to have her on today to share her experiences and explain to people out there who don't know as much about working in politics what it's truly like. There's uh, honestly nothing like working in the field for a political campaign. Um, And just at the, the top of the conversation can say that it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, but also one of the hardest the most fun you never want to have again (laughs) the best phrase to describe it Mm -hmm. um so just to explain a little bit about what a field staffer does um if you are employed as a a field organizer you'd be called or organizer you are conducting direct voter contact with voters so making phone calls registering voters knocking on doors preparing an electorate for an upcoming election Um, That takes a lot of different forms and can mean a lot of different things, but you are the front lines for a candidate who may not be able to speak to every voter personally in a district or across the country. Mm -hmm. But Evelyn, you forgot about the part where you eat pizza in your sweatpants and cry at work. Lots of crying. Well, that could be any job, though. (laughs) You just do it for a lot more hours. Truly do. You do it on a Saturday night and a Sunday morning, oddly enough. Mm. Yeah, so... um, Given the amount of work that has to be done on a campaign, uh, field staffers have insane hours, are known to really be the catch-all of a campaign. So if something needs to be done, it's up to the field organizers to find a way to to do it and get it done. Um, But you build up a lot of camaraderie with your fellow organizers and your friends, and you just find a way to power through it because you believe in the mission so much. Mm -hmm. How did you get your start? And put, what was the first campaign that you worked on? The Hillary Rodham Clinton oh, for America. Was. Yes, HFA. It shows how much I know. It was. And how did you get, like, what got you started in that? Yeah, I uh, had left my job in tech and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but was watching a lot of West Wing during, I call it my retirement, uh, <laughs> at 11 a.m., uh, you know, 
wondering what I should be doing with my life and um, had heard from a, an organizer who uh, organized around uh, Obamacare in 2010. Mm-hmm. And she said, hey, you have all the skills that you need to do this. You are alive. You are a warm body. That's really all you need to be to be an organizer. Is that on your business card? Inspiring. Yes. <laughs> alive and warm body. Not a psycho. Not <laughs> yes. crazy. Yep. Um, and she had just encouraged me to apply because I was a big fan of Hillary Clinton and wanted to see her elected. And I uh, got a, a phone call, an email, a couple weeks later, and they invited me to come out and organize in, in Philadelphia. And how long were you on the campaign? Uh, four months total. So I started right before the Democratic Convention in Philly, and then obviously went all the way through Election Day in November. Um, yeah. So I have never worked on a campaign. Like, as a field person, I've always been sort of in the um, digital kind of consulting world. So I'm curious to know from you, Evelyn, and then also Mariel. I know worked on the Bernie campaign, and then Lauren has done local field, and I'm just kind of wondering about your different experiences. So, like, in terms of different than digital? Different than working in an agency. Yeah, like, what's the day-to-day? How do you think the different sort of levels of campaigns are different from each other or or are the same? I mean, I think that, like, as an organizer... Um, what Evelyn is saying obviously resonates a lot with me because we had a similar experience of I'd never been on a campaign before and I'd also never been on a presidential level campaign before. So Evelyn and I both entered campaigns at the exact same level, kind of with the exact same experience. Um, I was an organizer um, in a couple of states, but I started off working for Bernie in New Hampshire as a field organizer. Um, And so I think that one of the biggest differences between like working at an agency or consulting um, in terms of like, uh, you know, digital work or finance or whatever, um, one of the biggest differences I think is when you're an organizer, you like drive your car, pack all your stuff like to somewhere where you probably don't know many people and you have like an initial training of like a few days and then people are kind of like, okay, now do your job. There's no support. There's no, like, checking in or, like, you know, let's talk about how you're doing. Let's talk about – not to say that there's no support on on field, but it's full steam ahead 24-7. Like, usually, especially if you're going um, from primary to primary in, like, a national election, there's no time to, like, check in with folks. It's kind of like you know your numbers that you have to hit for the day. you got to knock this many doors and you got to make this many phone calls. Um, and you're going to get that done. And we're all kind of on the same page about that. So the day to day doesn't vary like at all. It's the same thing, like really day after day. Would you agree, Evelyn? Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's like building a business, but in the, in the matter of weeks and months rather than over the course of years. Uh, so I'm just a great example. Uh, after I started every Monday from then on, we had a full class of 30 more organizers coming in for training in my office. Um, And that really kept pace, you know, all the way until um, the end of the election because there was so much work to be done and you had to scale the operation up so quickly. Uh, So in that way, you know, it's a great introduction to politics because 
you are really, you know, having to learn how to organize, learn these skills on your own, how to persuade folks to vote for your candidate, um, how to manage a lot of different moving pieces, um, and, you know, really represent the campaign in, in a good way. Something interesting that, because uh, you and Mariel had actually uh, done a seminar last week about field, organi uh, field organizing uh, at our company, and something that I had never heard of that sounded crazy to me was the getting housed with like volunteers and you have no control over that oh, where yeah, you're oh, going yeah. we, they call and you it both yeah. yeah and you both had interesting stories uh about that uh, so i was wondering if you could get into that a little bit they call it supporter housing um raised a lot of red flags for me coming from a professional environment and you know um i had just never heard of a workplace really putting someone up like this uh, so it's truly unique to the political world so you are placed by the campaign um, in a supporters home who you know loves the candidate a lot maybe has some extra room in their home or maybe can't give anything financially but has some space and, and wants to help the campaign uh, so I was housed with a lovely woman Joanne uh, who was a psychologist and a writer had been featured in an Oprah segment, had a mug from Oprah, said she was lovely. Wow. It was really magical. High roller. High roller indeed. Um, so I was housed with a woman named Joanne, who's really great, very kind. Uh, and you know, one fun thing is, you know, I would get home after these long days, 10, 11 p.m., she'd be sitting on the couch, and she wanted to get the gossip about the campaign she thought I was talking to Hillary Clinton herself, that I knew her personally. <laughs> no, Joanne, I don't know her. I'm sorry. Um, but she just, yeah, she wanted to kind of get the tea uh, as to what was going on on the campaign and get my hot take about, uh, you know, my insights and who, who I thought was winning that day and, you know, how things were going in the field. So uh, a fun and truly unique experience. Yeah, um, supporter housing is definitely a concept that I don't think a lot of people know about unless you are on campaigns. Um, it's just a very foreign concept of, like, it literally is what it sounds like. So you are showing up in a place and there is a person who you have never met who an organizer has maybe called or identified and they say, yes, like, we have extra space in our house somebody can literally come and live with me for free for months at a time. Um, and I was lucky enough to get placed with some really sweet uh, folks. They were like an older retired couple um, and they had kids who were grown up and they just had a lot of extra space in their house. Um, so they were kind enough to take me in um, for almost four months uh, and sometimes fed me. And But our honestly, our schedules... Uh, meant that we didn't really cross paths that much because I honestly usually woke up before they did and were at work um, and then came back and they were already in bed because they went to bed at like 7 o'clock. And, <laughs> and Lord knows mm -hmm. field organizer did not go home at 7 o'clock. We were at the office usually a minimum until 9 p.m., mm -hmm. uh, probably later. But anyway, so yeah, living with people who are kind enough to open up their homes to you is an incredible thing, but it also can be kind of a shock, like in the case where I found out that my hosts uh, didn't use toilet paper um, because they didn't, didn't use toilet paper. Did not use toilet paper. They didn't think it was eco-friendly enough. 
Um, so that was a pretty fun shock. Hey, Evelyn. Um, supporter housing on the Hillary campaign. Toilet paper or no toilet paper? Lots of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to throw any like shade here, but if somebody told me, like, yeah, the supporter housing that I stayed with didn't use toilet paper because it wasn't eco-friendly, my first thought would be, oh, it must have been a Bernie Sanders <laughs> supporter housing person. You know what? Y'all can throw shade at me all you want <laughs> and to. And we will. But, you know. Um, it was a lovely experience. Like, honestly, learn to live with it. Learn to love it. These people were so kind and so sweet. Yep. And, um, like, at the end of the day, the fact that um, – just politics is such a unique thing and that people are so willing to sacrifice so much. Um, you know, people are willing to open up their homes. People are willing to like move across the country and sacrifice. Sometimes they're like fully established careers to like become an organizer or to become somebody on a campaign for a really finite amount of time without a lot of benefits and without a lot of pay, but they do it because they are bought into the idea that like, if you work hard, you can like make the world a better place. And I think that, that's what makes us great as uh, Democrat liberal people. And just a quick PSA for supporter housing. It's definitely something that I've used when I've, you know, canvassed for a weekend or a week for gubernatorial and state Senate races. So if you do have extra space in your house or your parents are looking for a way to get involved or your grandparents and they can't go out and knock doors, they have full-time jobs, it's not something that they can be- uh, um, dedicate their time to. It's a great way to, you know, help out some young folks who do want to get involved and definitely aren't making enough campaign money to pay for housing. So. But please uh, have toilet paper at your house. Oh, it's yeah. something you can get used to over time, but not over a weekend. Set the you got to set the ground rules. So everyone needs to own a bathrobe. <laughs> it sounds bath like there's robe. a story there, but I don't know if I want to know it. There is absolutely a story there. Well, I think you're going to have to get into it. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> we may have to edit this out. Uh, so I had to get up earlier than normal because I had no clean laundry and I had already cycled through the dirty laundry twice. You have no time to do your laundry on a political <laughs> campaign. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I cannot set foot in this office wearing these stanky clothes. So we're going to have to do laundry. Got up earlier than normal. And uh, my supporter housing mom decided to get out of the shower without her bathrobe on, open the door thinking that I'd be asleep like normal and was walking around just butt naked. <laughs> See, but that's the thing. You are in somebody else's You're a guest. home. You she are can a do guest. whatever she wants. She can be naked. I think that's what the stand your ground law was about, right? Yeah. This is an interesting new part of the Hillary Bernie comparative to me. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just going to say this is what I would yeah. expect. From Who has better supporter housing? housing. So Nudity really versus Lack of toilet together. paper versus, you know. Lack of clothing. But yeah. honestly, that was only one of the many places I stayed in. Like, I, I stayed in some other places, and but it was mostly similar. It was mostly older folks who had extra rooms, and they would let us stay with them. And honestly, those people are, like, the kindest people. Like, seriously. Anybody who's willing to open up their home like that is just, like, incredible. Truly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one anecdote. Uh, my car was totaled uh, during the campaign. Somebody drove into it. She blew through a stop sign, unfortunately. Well, we won't get into that. Um, But Joanne, my supporter housing mom, was so kind to me and really helped me connect with the right people to make sure that everything was okay and took care of me and, you know, did a lot of the emotional hand-holding that I didn't have um, 
you know, because I wasn't at home. Uh, so they are truly angels. They are the sweetest people uh, generally, um, and they really help campaigns survive. Yeah. Um, so something else uh, that I think we should get into is the actual sort of day-to-day operations of field work. I know you talked a lot before about phone banking and running that whole organization something that i don't think i could ever do it would make me lose my mind um but i was wondering if you could explain to our listeners at home what phone banking is and why it's so important well i'll challenge that john because you're now running an award-winning podcast so award-winning i think the skills are there really awards (laughs) the skills are there um yeah so Like I said, it's direct voter contact, so registering voters and IDing them, um, you know, kind of checking, gauging their level of support for your candidate, um, and then planning volunteer events so that you have a whole crew of people who can kind of support you and your mission. Um, So yeah, I mean, you hit the ground on day one, you're given a call list, and you're told you need to call through this universe, and it's usually, you know, maybe been given to you by the last presidential campaign in the area. Um, So these are grass tops, these are religious leaders, these are community leaders and great volunteers, you know, from Obama 2012, let's say. Um, You meet with them, you get them invested in this campaign, and then you ask them to come out and volunteer and then bring their friends. Um, All in order to build this volunteer organization to support your candidate. Um, Like I said before, you are doing a lot in a short amount of time, building these massive, massive volunteer organizations, Um, you know, just through the power of asking nicely. Yeah, and something else that I just learned about recently is hustle, um, which has become a really important part uh, of these campaigns. And so I was hoping that uh, you guys could explain what hustle is and why it's so important hustle was like my break from real work hustle was like what i did when i needed to be at work and was required to be there but i didn't want to actually do any real work so what is hustle yeah hustle is a text messaging platform uh, that allows you to like almost mass text like huge swaths of supporters Um, but because of i think fec regulation you have to send each text individually it has to be like a real person. Has to be a real person. It can't person. just be like a robot that's texting everybody. A real person or a dog. A dog. <laughs> Could be a dog. I don't know. We're we're we Does have it just some... say living creature? It doesn't say human being. It just has to yeah, it doesn't say human being. So we would love to train Meryl's dog to send texts. I'm working on it right now. Perfect. So yeah, we would send texts to um, recruit people to come out to volunteer events. Uh, to principal events where we had the candidate or you know the president, the vice president come out in support of Hillary. Um, and also just ID. Oh, it must have been nice to have them coming out supporting Hillary. It was. <laughs> it was great. I wasn't there, but I'm sure it was great. It was wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was just yet another kind of avenue to reach out to supporters in the area and, you know, get people invested in the election. I also understand there's a lot of data entry after these things are done for the day. Um, yeah, it's the policy is that if it's not online or in our database by, I think they said 10, 10 p.m., uh, it didn't exist. 
And because there are so many juicy insights to glean from all of the work that we're doing, um, they wanted to be kind of analyzing things and, and checking how uh, Hillary was performing in the field. Um, so we would regularly stay at the office until 1, 2 in the morning just to make sure that everything was reported, especially mm -hmm. after big events. How many people were in your office? I think it was like 30 or so. 30. And I was talking to Evelyn about like this data entry piece and like after hours in the office because everybody always talks about how they think that people who work in politics are like everybody's wearing suits, everybody's like, you know, got their stuff together and, and super educated and yeah, and, and just like has been in politics forever. But like honestly, the people who are doing the work are eighteen to 28-year-olds who have Cheeto dust on their fingers, who have spilled <laughs> coffee all over their call sheets, who are, like, running on three Red Bulls and macaroni and cheese, like, trying to get this data in before 10 o'clock or midnight or whatever. And I think that, like, that's the amazing camaraderie of campaigns is, like, no matter what level you're at, like, after 9 p.m., everybody's in the office and everybody's just like entering data as quickly as they can because everybody wants to go home and everybody's tired. And there's something just so special about it. Well, I mean, I think the campaign gave me a lazy eye and I'm pretty sure <laughs> I drank so much soda and coffee that my blood is now sludge. But <laughs> it was a great experience. Yeah. Speaking of which, sacrifices. <laughs> I have a question for the three of you. Um, so... We've been talking about like the crazy long hours and like all of the things that you have to do that aren't like super fun and you know you're tired all the time so there's like a recent trend of especially 2018 campaigns of campaign workers unionizing and i just wanted to get your thoughts yeah i think that like um the campaign workers guild which i believe is doing a lot of the unionizing right now of campaigns um, it's a great idea because everybody deserves rights and to feel respected and, and valued in the workplace. And, um, and it's really tough work, like we were talking about. And I think it's really easy, especially when there's a lot of younger folks, to just think that, that working those long hours without many benefits is, is normal. Um, and it's also important to recognize that these, uh, especially Democrats, you know, preach a living wage and benefits and fair working conditions for workers. Um, yet, from my experience on campaigns and also Evelyn's experience, um, it is, I would say, less than fair a lot of the time. But with that being said, um, there is so much work that needs to get done on campaigns. Um, and it does take really, really long hours. So I think that it's hard for me to imagine um, you know, if campaign workers do unionize, like, in 2020, like, on a presidential election, it's hard for me to imagine, like, the hours being cut in a significant way, um, because I think that it would really have to, just a lot of things would have to be reworked and overthrown, and, and I support it 100%, but I think that um, that's going to be a really difficult challenge. Yeah, and I guess that would just kind of be my fear, because um, both of you have been talking about presidential campaigns specifically, um, but there are campaigns all the way down to the local, to the city level. Um, and how are people treated on campaigns like that? Um, so I just think that, you know, if we do have campaign workers that are um, unionizing, I think that can be a really 
easy place for lifelong campaign workers who are doing the cycle to cycle to unionize, but what happens to workers who are doing it as a one-off thing? Um, mm-hmm. If they're working fewer hours, does that work fall onto interns? Um, when people are when campaigns are trying to make up all of that money that they're paying, does that mean that there are more unpaid college students, high schoolers who are trying to pick up that slack? So I'm just interested to see how that works out practically for the campaigns who are currently organizing. Right. Like that I, work cycle is so cyclical. Like people are in yeah, and out so in a matter of months. So how yeah. do you get people around long enough to, you know, get in, get unionizing together? Yeah. And I think that there's no doubt that all of us would support that if we could figure out like a sustainable, um, like practical way to do it. It just seems like it's, there's like a lot of huge challenges, especially knowing the nature of campaign work. Um, because there are a lot of things that are super wrong with it and, and need to be adjusted, but it's just figuring out um, maybe like a happy medium between. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of things that um, organizations who are overseeing campaigns and supporting candidates can say, you know, workers should be paid X amount of money or, you know, you need to make sure that workers are getting at least one day off a week or something like that and trying to hold progressive candidates who I hope want to do the right thing trying to hold them accountable to make sure that they're treating their employees with care. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I wanted to get into, uh, it's in the same vein, is uh, we definitely have talked about how working in the campaign world, you kind of get stuck in the bubble of politics during it, and it seems like um, that's the, well, in your world, it really is the only thing going on at that time, especially with the amount of hours that you're working um, and I know you had, uh, Evelyn had made a point before about, um, it was difficult to understand how other people who weren't working in politics, like, how do you not care about this issue? How do you not care about this election? Um, because it's so much your life for such a long period of time. Absolutely. And I, I will just tell you that when campaign staffers would move from city to city or state to state, they would call it deployment. Um, so that just kind of illustrates the frame of mind that folks, militaristic, yeah, yeah, that folks get into, and you're absolutely right. It is, it totally consumes your life. You are there seven days a week, twelve plus hours a day. Mm-hmm. You are talking to supporters or non-supporters, and even the folks that are indifferent. It is your mission to get them invested in the campaign. So to kind of resurface win or loss, but to have to kind of reintegrate into society and be dealing with normal folks again who, you know, didn't care as much about the election. Uh, Yeah, it was shocking. It really was. It was hard to even just go to the grocery store and just walk around and feel normal again. Mm -hmm. And I'll say also, um, like, to convince other people to participate in direct voter contact can be like a grueling thing, like really pulling teeth to get folks to participate. So you really have to be like so completely bought in to be able to convince other people to do that kind of work. So I think the mindset that most organizers are in is like, this is what I care about 24-7. And that's why it becomes so intense because to convince other people to get involved, you yourself have to be so bought in. And not to mention the aspect of when you go home at night and you're on social media, everything you're reading is about the election. So it's like you go home, you turn on the TV, there's the news. Or even watching like John Oliver or 
any of those shows, like all of those things that you love and enjoy are about politics and then everything your friends are talking about or your family. Um, usually it's about politics or people want to ask you about it. So it's definitely just like an all-consuming thing. And it's such a public-facing role, right? So, you know, a lot of my job was spent wandering the streets of Philadelphia trying to register voters and approaching strangers. Four hours of every night I was spending on the phone calling folks, trying to get them to come out to volunteer. So I had very, and all of us had very little private space in our lives anymore. And so to have to kind of transition back out of that, you forget who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. um, but yet it's worth it because you believe in your candidate so much. It's like forcing yourself into a really positive cult and then trying to yes, convince everyone exactly. else to join your cult. Yes. Um, yeah, you really, I guess, yeah, you have to really believe that they're the right person. It'd be really hard to work those kind of hours if you were sort of so-so about the candidate that you were working for. Yes. It, ca it can't really be, like, just a job. No, and I think that, honestly, the next American Horror Story they make needs to be American Horror Story campaign because I think that there would be some great material there. Mm. Me and my lazy eye. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> the toilet paper. We are not doctors, okay, by the way. I'd like, to, I'd like to put that out there, that we are not medical professionals. <laughs> I mean, I just ate so much Qdoba. It's unhealthy. You know, they, they Is that related to the lazy eye? <laughs> give you lazy eyes if you eat too much Qdoba? <laughs> too much queso. Too much. Is mm -hmm. that a thing? Too much queso? Yes. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so speaking of being a public-facing uh, figure in a campaign, we've talked about door knocking quite a few times, so I was hoping we could get your number one door knocking horror story because everyone definitely has one. Oh, great question. Okay, so there's another concept with field organizing. Um, and for those listeners at home, I do want to let you know that Lauren is – cracking her fingers because she's i'm sure got a lot of scary anecdotes raring to go raring to go when i canvassed for andy shore for mayor lansing mayor uh i had one fellow talk to me about talk at me for 10 minutes about why abortion was murder but if you can believe that was actually not the worst door knocking experience that mm. i had so in philadelphia given that we were in a swing state pennsylvania we had a lot of supporters from New York City come down to the city for the day to knock doors for us um, in an effort to feel like they were really helping to move the election forward for Hillary, which they were. So had two bus full of, buses full of New York City folk come down to volunteer for me. And at the end of the day, had a gentleman walk up to me and say, I, I think it went okay, you know, registered a, a couple people to vote and... Uh, one guy chased me off his doorstep with a uh, clawfoot hammer, but uh, <laughs> it was okay. A claw hammer, but it was okay. Uh, you know, got those guys registered, so it was okay. It's and a pretty small hammer. It's not a giant <laughs> hammer, you know. It was a pocket hammer. A pocket hammer. It's basically a mallet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like wave it. That's like saying hello. <laughs> that's, a, that's the Philly hello right there. <laughs> Chasing someone with a hammer is a Philly hello. <laughs> it's like... Go birds. 
the majority of my knowledge of Philadelphia is from the show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, so that sounds right. And I can report that having lived in Philadelphia for four months, that show is based off of truth. Mm. And and what I know about the city is that they uh, grease the light poles with uh, lard, yeah. and then people still climbed up them. So that sounds about Innovative. like on on, uh, on level with what I knew. On brand. On brand. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, guy chased you, or guy says that a guy chased him. Off with a hammer. With a hammer, yeah. And we didn't do anything about it. I just said, okay, we'll look into that. And of course, we, well, what could I do? What could I do? We'll look into that as always code for, I'm not going to do anything (laughs) about it. I just won't go to that house myself. Thank you so much. You don't have any visible injuries. Yeah. Uh, Lauren, seemed like you had some great uh, door knocking stories. I've heard a few. Um, Yeah. So in one summer, I wandered onto a um, meth bust Mm. at a house where a bunch of undercover police officers, one of them was just like, when I came, knocked on the door, was like, hey, sweetie, you might not want to come in here right now. We're actually busting a drug situation. Um, And that same summer, I got bit by a dog (laughs) and then had to get 10 rabies shots. So summer of 2014, which means I'm still immune to rabies until 2019. So if anyone has any bats, um, I'm your girl. (laughs) Lauren, um, what was the address of the meth house? I'm just asking for research. Um, There were a lot of mosquitoes in that area, so I would not recommend (laughs) going there. The house is probably pretty because affordable of though now. Mosquitoes, right? Not for any other reason. Well, that's kind of the easiest time to talk to some, like when they're in handcuffs and everything. They have to listen to you. I mean, I wanted to talk to the officers. They're probably good voters. Can you register somebody to vote while they're in the process of being detained? I believe they can't vote while they're in detention, but afterwards mm. it would have been fine. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that. You mm. can thank a Democrat for that law. <laughs> Amen. Wow. Uh, Mariel, do you have a good one? Um, To be honest, I actually didn't have any, like, extremely traumatizing canvassing stories, which I think is kind of shocking, um, considering, um, you know, I was in New Hampshire, which is like either you are voting for Trump and everybody you know is voting for Trump, or you are, like, super chill, like, definitely voting Bernie. Um, But when I came across the people who uh, weren't supporters of Bernie Sanders, um, I have gotten called like, you know, a communist, a commie, which is like one of my favorite catch-alls for like an evil person that people would call people in the 80s. Like everybody who was bad was a commie. Um, So yeah, I got called a commie a lot. Um, But honestly, like that's it. So I'm sorry to say that... um, I have nothing too exciting to report on the canvassing front. We had a different C word get lobbied at us mm. on the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm sorry. And it wasn't that. Cheeto. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, great stories from the road. But what did I say? Most fun you never want to have again. Absolutely. Uh, Would you do it again? I do envision that I would work field or work on another presidential campaign, this time to get it right. Uh, but I don't know if I have it in me. I'm like 100 years old. 100. You are not. I don't think so. <laughs> She's like 27. Hmm. Is 27 like 100 now? Because I am concerned According about that. According to Evelyn, it is. 
I'm, I'm the pers- campaign aged me about 50, 60 years, so. For eligible bachelors out there, I'm um, pushing 23. <laughs> <laughs> um, not yet 100, a.k.a. 27 years old. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, another important function of the field work is the fundraising aspect of it. Um, and no, we never. Field I never fundraise. Campaign work, not field work. Oh. Yeah. So I got to do good, this. Transition. Good transition, though. No. I think that's perfect. Yeah. No, I'm not even going to edit this out. I want the listeners to know how <laughs> ignorant I truly <laughs> am to some of this, some of this stuff. I am yeah. surrounded by people who know a lot more about this than me. I just know how to run the mixing board. They didn't trust us to raise money. Yeah. Anyways, frankly, what I was trying to segue into was over to uh, something that Mariel had brought up to me about uh, small dollar fundraising. I was hoping she could get into that for for a hot minute. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people who are tuned into the political world or maybe work in politics or um, some related fields knew that um, the end of the fundraising quarter was this past Saturday. Um, and I was doing some work because here at our firm, we work for um, a couple of different folks who are running for elected office in Congress. Um, and I help to write some of the emails that you hate getting in your inbox, but that sometimes work, um, especially when you have a good candidate with a good message. Um, so anyway, so Saturday was the end of the quarter. Basically, after the end of the quarter, um, all candidates have to uh, kind of give an update to the public on how much money they've raised. So people want to do an extra push towards the end to make sure that they can get a lot of money. Um, to show that they're doing well. Um, and anyway, um, everybody knows that like money is how you obviously can run a campaign. Um, but the one specifically I wanted to talk about that has to do with democratic fundraising and how things have changed over the past couple years is um, the invention of a tool um, that most every Democrat um, uses to raise money online. Um, and there is a company um, called Act Blue, which is actually based in uh, my home state of Massachusetts. Um, and they have a piece of software that um, all Democratic-leaning, I believe, um, candidates and organizations can use for free um, to uh, raise their money through online, um, and they just take a small percentage of the donations. Um, but the reason why I wanted to talk about that is because they had their biggest quarter ever, um, this past quarter, and I think that that's incredible. They said that they had 7,761 campaigns and organizations um, who raised money on ActBlue, um, and they raised on, I believe it was Friday, they said that they had broken their record, which was one day before the quarter ended, um, with $171 million raised for Democratic candidates and organizations. And- flush, we cash. Ching, ching, baby. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's just incredible. And, um, I think that, um, Act Blue is like amazing for a number of reasons. The first one being that it's free. So it kind of levels the playing field for anybody who wants to fundraise. Um, the second thing is that, um, you know, it kind of, it takes away the barrier, um, to running for office, uh, for a lot of candidates who might not have access to maybe those like big dollar donors, um, but who can set up an Act Blue page and get it out to their networks, and they might be able to fund their campaign in a grassroots way. Um, 
And I mean, obviously, um, I saw this tool used um, very successfully with Bernie Sanders um, during the 2016 election. I think that he raised more money than any other candidate has on ActBlue. Um, you could say he revolutionized the way we raise money. It's a great impression. Thank you. Um, so anyway, yeah, everybody knows the whole $27 thing. And, and the fact that he could make that a central part of his campaign was really important because now we're seeing other candidates say what their average contribution size is and how many grassroots donors they have. And the amazing thing about raising a bunch of money on small donations is that um, we have candidates who are now saying they're not going to accept money from, cor from uh, corporate PACs. We're seeing candidates who are now going to be held more accountable to their donors and less accountable to like huge dollar donors. So I don't know. I was personally excited about this. I don't know if anybody else feels the same. Um, one other great thing about getting so many small dollar contributions from so many donors around the country is um, ActBlue has a one-click contribution option. So if you already have your information saved, you can just click one button. You don't have to enter all of your information, including your address and your phone number for compliance. Um, so it's a lot, a lot like Amazon's one-click shopping. And because Bernie Sanders got so many contributions, the um, number of donors that are in that system now has increased by a lot. So it really lowers the barrier to entry for a lot of people who want to maybe donate to their Board of Regents candidate or their candidate for governor right. um, who otherwise would have to enter all of that information. So it makes mm -hmm. our jobs a little bit easier and it makes the job of donors a little bit easier too. So thank you, Senator Sanders. Mm. Act Blue, if you're listening, I don't think you're currently a paid sponsor, but we will gladly take your money. Uh, we're more interested in getting the mail order mattress uh, sponsor right oh, now. Oh, Casper. Hey, Casper. Well, that, Lisa, there's a actually. There's a whole bunch of different ones, but that that seems to be the mark of a truly successful podcast now is when you get sponsored by one of them. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Mariel. Hey, did you hear about this amazing new mattress deal? What? Just kidding. We're not going to give you free advertising, but that could be you on our <laughs> podcast. It could be you. <laughs> hear how good my voice is? Come on. Sponsor us. Mm. So the only other thing that I would add, um, and I think uh, both Marilyn and Lauren alluded to this, but before ActBlue and other online fundraising tools, nobody wanted my $5 check. You know, they wouldn't meet with me for $5. It was a $50 entrance fee to talk to the person who is running to represent you in Congress. And that's still, you know, the case, unfortunately, in many cases. Um, but now I can be part of the political process and help a candidate that, that I love and uh, admire and support uh, without having to be personally loaded. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of Koch brothers on the, the Democratic side. I think maybe, are there any big dollars? Uh, Tom Steyer actually has launched a major campaign to um, fund political campaigns. Mm. We need Soft more. In the ground for we need more like presidential run. <laughs> dark, seedy money, though. Like, is that what we need? Yeah, we don't have any. Yeah. We don't have any dark money. It's just good-hearted people who want to uh, make mm. the world a better place and be, stop Donald Trump. Be quiet, John. We need mm. some of that sweet, sweet Casper mattress money. Casper That's mattress what we need. Money. Anyway. Bringing it back around. <laughs> uh, all roads lead back to mail-order mattress company sponsorships. Um, My grandma actually embroidered that on the pillow once. <laughs> wow, that must have taken a lot of talent. Um, so yeah, that was a great, uh, uh, definitely glad that we 
have you on, Evelyn, to really dive deeper into the campaign life. Um, I know, especially after the uh, Lunch and Learn presentation that you and Mariel did a few weeks ago, I knew it would be make a great segment for this. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, just on final words, um, Donald Trump, if you're listening, I'm really upset that you ruined white men and red hats for me. Mm. Who did? It had the potential to be a good look. Were you into that before? Hey, man, Cardinals, you never know. (laughs) You're walking around in the grocery store. You don't know if you're going to have to fight somebody or if you're going to have to talk about sports, which in my book is just as terrible. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) All right, moving on. Uh, This week, uh, by popular demand from my co-host. I am not going to be doing the trivia questions. Yay. It was me. Not, I was the were, co-host. They were not happy with my questions last week. They were a bit vague, uh, sort of spanning the breadth of human knowledge to answer them. So this week, our very own Amy Libka is going to be asking the trivia questions that she's prepared. Mine are not necessarily uh, less vague, but I just kind of wanted you to know what it's like, John. Sure. So here we go. In game. Okay, so I have three trivia questions mm-hmm. um, about the Midwest. I'm going to start you off with a kind of easier one. Sure. So the first question is, what Midwest state has the largest Amish population of any state in the U.S.? I think I might have an idea, but uh, Evelyn and Mary will seem a lot more excited to answer this question. Okay, Evelyn and Mariel, on the count of three, say it at the same time. I think it'll be funny if your answers are different. Ready? One, two, three. Pennsylvania. Uh. <laughs> it's Ohio. No! Oh. What? So one of you is from the Midwest and one of you is not. Mm. One of us also lived in Pennsylvania All for... Right. <laughs> Four and a half years. So it's down to me and Lauren now. You're not helping oh, your own cause. Like it's elimination now. They used their. They used up their guesses. I did already tell you I what the answer the is. At the top oh, of you the did, game. John. Oh God, I didn't even hear. No one. Oh, well, let him guess I mean, then. I, let him guess. Yeah. You didn't hear. Let me guess. He didn't, I didn't hear. Air quotes. I will just guess quick. I'm gonna guess Ohio. Oh, that's convenient, isn't it? It was Ohio, and I didn't <laughs> yeah, say that. Yeah, I win. I win. I feel weird, and now I feel like I have to look it up again, even though I already did it today. Because you guys seem so well, confident. Pennsylvania has Lancaster, which is mm-hmm. like the Amish capital. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would have been my first guess. But I what only do got I it know? right because, yeah. <laughs> All right. That Good was, question. Uh, that was fun. Okay. So the second question is, Wisconsin is the largest producer in the United States of what? Like there's an obvious answer, but it's not going to be the obvious answer, or else that would have been the, the first question to ask. Can I guess first this time? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I am going to. Nope, I actually don't have an answer. Okay, great. I need to think of See how hard this is, John. Well, we know what it's supposed to be, but me, it's not going to be that. Okay. Mariel. All right, so everybody thinks it's cheese, mm. but it's definitely corn. I was going to guess beef. Hmm. I'm going to guess those little shower curtain rings. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's really specific. <laughs> so I guess none of these are mutually exclusive. So I'm going to look all of these up after. But none of those were what I was going to say. Oh, I haven't um, given an answer yet. I'm the last hope. Go ahead. Um, number one export is Wisconsin. Is it? Liberals. Can I? All right. Let's do. Uh, I'll, I'll ask for some clues to get to the answer. Is it something? Uh, that's not. That's not how trivia no, well, works. That's that not that absolutely. I've, you've not all already answered, and I'm giving up. So I want to get to. <laughs> I want to get to the answer slowly. Build some. Build some drama. Um, We're gonna is pause it, here for thirty minutes. Is it something agricultural? It is. That was gonna be my hint. Mm. Is it soy? Soybeans. It is not. Okay. Ooh. Okay. What is it? It is cranberries. What? What? Surprise. What? Wisconsin uh, produces about 57% of the U.S.'s cranberry production. That, that is means shocking. we all got it wrong. Mm-hmm. I thought I'm it, shocked. honestly, I thought it was in, like, Massachusetts. It used to be Massachusetts, but it hasn't been since 1995, apparently. I would have never guessed. Good question. Wow. Thanks, Jen. All right. Question three. Okay. I apologize in advance for this question because it's kind of confusing, but I wrote it this way because I thought it would be funniest to see your answer. We'll judge. We'll judge. Right. Maybe just we'll ask the question. We'll see how funny you really are. So Alton, Illinois is the home of the holder of what world record? You said Alta, Illinois? Alton. Alton. A-L-T-O-N. Illinois is the home to the, someone who has what record? And you were criticizing John for being too vague? I just wanted him to know how it felt. Mm. I kind of like it. You haven't gotten to me. Anybody have a guess? I'm going to guess it's the owner of the most of those little shower curtain rings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need to dive into this later. Yeah, Google it. It's true. Just Google it. Um, Might have something to do with the name of it. Town. This is super vague. Record holder for longest toenails. Alton. Oh. Alton, Illinois. Record for most Altons. Um, <laughs> is it something we've talked about on the show before? Is that it? was a, excuse no, me. Com- acknowledge that that guess was serious. We haven't had enough. Random. We haven't had enough episodes yet to have inside jokes. <laughs> um, I am going to guess. I don't know the largest star wars collection all great guesses it's actually just the world's tallest man (laughs) how tall is he is that robert wadlow Mm -hmm. he's like eight feet tall what why do you know he was 811.1 yeah oh my god he was like seven feet tall when he was like in the boy scouts how did he get any pants i've been the the ripley's believe it or not museum and Niagara Falls, and they had like a statue of him. And you didn't know it, John. Yeah. I oh. just wanted to see what world records you guys would guess. Sorry. Mm. Well, the only thing cheap, I could John. think of was Star Wars toys. Because <laughs> I, I just watched that Toys That Made Us show on Netflix, which is pretty good. You guys should watch it. Um, Next time, I will do multiple choice, you guys. Thank you. Mm. Uh, well, great trivia round this week, Amy. Uh, Thanks, John. You you haven't broken my spirit, even though none of us got the qu- any of the questions <laughs> right. Well, normally Lauren gets them all right right off the yeah, bat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's a just really week. fixated on the shower curtain rings. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. We'll unpack that later. Yeah. 
Good job, uh, Lev. Maybe we can rotate it. Somebody else can do it. Just wait. Figure that out. But anyways, the next segment uh, is getting into local Midwest news. Uh, first thing that I thought we should talk about, um, something that's getting written up, uh, about a lot lately, um, the special elections that are happening across the country, it seems that two uh, Midwestern governors are holding up special elections uh, to try to disfavor, is disfavor a word? No. Um, to try to disenfranchise uh, mm-hmm. Democratic voters. One of them is uh, someone who's known as a person who is hated, uh, Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin. Um, he's been uh, holding up some special elections in the state. Um, a, a county circuit judge recently decided that the Elections had to be held, and so Walker reacted to this by uh, asking Republican legislative leaders to um, come together for an extraordinary session um, so that they could pass a bill that would no longer allow special elections after the state's spring elections in even number years. Something really specific out of the blue to try to... so specific. Yeah. um, And so that's happening right now, and I think... That's interesting. It seems like Scott Walker maybe has some sort of personal grudge it could about be. special you might be You might be onto something, Lauren. Um, two, it says two Republican uh, Republicans appear to be dissenting right now, and that could cause uh, Walker's stalling plan to collapse. So wishing them the best of luck. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. It, it, it's probably a bad reason why they're stalling it. They probably want it to be worse for whatever reason. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, that's happening right now. And then also right here in Michigan, uh, our own governor, Rick Snyder, is holding up the uh, the special elections to replace um, John Conyers and Burt Johnson, uh, two Democrats from uh, who were recently ousted, uh, preventing special elections, elections that would replace them. Um, it's not good. Um, there's definitely... Uh, a fascist history of suspending elections um, that uh, something we definitely don't want to see happen in America, and especially not right here in the Midwest. So I think that you hit the nail on the head, John, that this is about disenfranchising Democratic voters. Uh, but let's not lose the undertone here that these are uh, Conyers and Johnson, are both um, legislators out of Detroit, representing largely African-American populations. So this is not just disenfranchising Democratic voters. This is disenfranchising Democratic African-American voters. Mm -hmm. And you better believe that if this was a seat that was in Holland or in the UP, Snyder would have already called this special election. Mm -hmm. So he's playing politics with a class of people that have historically not had the right to vote or have had their vote taken away from them. And given his history in our state with people of color, I'm, you know, I'm truly wondering if this is what he wants his legacy to be in Michigan. Right. At least, yeah, he's pretty close to being, to being out. He's term limited as of November. Um, not sure why he's trying to make his name even worse right before this, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just one opportunity to make sure that a new term of legislators don't have their foot in the door don't have a grasp when the regular election comes around so it's just one kind of last 
grasp mm-hmm. at power if there is a chance for them to, which there's not really a chance for them to flip these seats. Yeah, but. I'm sure he'll get right into lobbying as soon as he's out and uh, just make it even easier for him. Um, it's also, uh, I guess, uh, Rick Scott in Florida is doing the same thing. I don't know the details on that, uh, but I know that he is also holding up special elections and um, there might be a court case being levied down there right now, but um, this definitely seems to be a pattern um, with Republican governors all across the country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that also with like the special elections that we've been talking about in um, you know places like Pennsylvania, like I'm sure that uh, you know a Democrat won there, and Democrats are winning all over the place in Alabama. Um, so special elections haven't been going in the way that a lot of Republicans would like, and I think that they're panicking, and I think that they are using tactics that the Republican Party has traditionally used when they want to keep people out of the ballot box, which is they are going to gerrymander the heck out of districts. They are going to create ridiculous voting laws, which is laughable when you have a party saying, why do we not need all of these extra laws and regulations on the books? Yet, oh, let's create this um, extremely arbitrary voting law right before folks are supposed to go cast their ballots. So we have, you know, we have a lot of different tactics being um, used by these folks that we've seen used before. And again, we we know the drill and, and we know the reasons why they're doing this. But it's funny that like they can still get away with it because I think that maybe some people still do believe them. Um, but I think it's only because they are uneducated and can't really see the patterns that are happening. Not necessarily that they've seen the patterns and they disagree. I think it's just that like they don't recognize it as part of the the calculated system that it is. Mm-hmm. We deserve and are constitutionally granted representation in our government. So for all of these governors to delay in putting forth a special election is taking the people's voice away in how they are governed, which is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wishing, uh, wishing the best of luck to the anyone dissenting to these things happening, the people out there protesting it and hopefully through the judicial system we can get these uh, elections back on the move the good news though too is that we've got a lot of good democrats running in the conyers seat Mm -hmm. and i'm sure there will be good democrats running in all of these seats they just need to have the chance to Mm -hmm. have an election yeah it's gonna happen blue wave baby uh next topic uh great topic uh marijuana in our own state of Michigan. Ah! <laughs> Marijuana. Uh, so it's looking like there's a decent chance that uh, recreational marijuana is going to be on the ballot in Michigan in November. Um, we've had legalized medical marijuana for, I think, in 2008 is when it passed here. Um, and it definitely uh, hits home right here in Lansing because we have a bajillion dispensaries. Capital Dank, right down the street. Yeah. It's a hopping business. It's always busy. Another one of our lovely sponsors. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Not yet. Um, I think that, like, um, just kind of jumping into that real quick, like, an overhead of, you know, what are the reasons why we would want to legalize marijuana? 
um, before we get into like some of the things that have gone wrong and, and Lansing with the, the way that they've decided to do it here. But um, like, you know, we can look at it through the criminal justice lens of why it's important to legalize marijuana. And we can also look at it through an economic lens of why it's important to legalize marijuana. And first, we need to deal with the criminal justice aspect of it because we should not have people sitting in prison and being arrested and having their lives ruined while um, a bunch of people in Colorado are getting filthy rich. That is wrong. So I want to tell you some stats right now. Um, So in 2016, um, the number of arrests for drugs nationally um, was 1,572,579. And then the number of arrests um, for marijuana law violations in 2016 was 653,249, which is over one-third of the drug arrests in the United States so we are wasting countless millions of dollars arresting people for marijuana every year. Um, that is outrageous to me that, that people are being thrown in prison and that we are wasting so much money on that. Um, and then the second piece is the economic piece. Um, and Colorado tax revenue last year from legalized marijuana um, reached well over $500 million. So that's just something to think about for states like like Michigan and especially cities like Lansing who desperately need their potholes taken care of. That money could fix all the roads, baby. Not all the roads, but a lot of the roads. So I just think it's important, like, before we deep dive into it, to think about some of those positives and then also the ridiculousness of um, criminalizing cannabis. Mariel, would you call that your pot for potholes platform? Because I am in. Lauren, let's talk about that after. Someone had to say it. I'm glad it wasn't me that had to say that. That's what I'm here for. But yes, that that is my idea. So we'll talk about that after this. so yeah, the uh, like I said, medical marijuana has been legal in Michigan for quite a while now. Um, the recent story is that so in it was pretty recently the, the a lot of medical marijuana dispensaries in Lansing got shut down because um, they um, they passed a uh, new ordinance that was capping the total number in Lansing at twenty five. Um, there's a group there's a group that's made an appeal already, um, but as of right now it stands and they. At the same time, they also um, they made it uh, so applications. They, a lot of dispensaries were operating sort of in a gray area for a while, um, where they could still operate while their uh, license was being viewed, and they gave them a, a hard deadline of putting in their full application by uh, this past February fifteenth. Um, and there are two hundred dispensaries. Uh, it said that did not comply with this. And so they are um, operating uh, definitely out of the gray area and more into the illegal area now. Um, and they're saying that they're going to start passing um, some of these things onto the criminal justice system and starting to really crack down on these. Um, and it, it, like I said, it definitely, we have a lot of these uh, here in Lansing. They've been, um, really booming, taking up uh, storefronts that were vacant for a really long time, um, definitely pumping money into the city. Uh, so it's it, it's definitely hard to, hard to see the other side of it right now when it seems to be a positive thing in Lansing. 
my criticism is really sa- saved for the legislators at the state and the federal levels yeah. because we had laws that were conflicting on both levels because there was no clarity about how this would be managed and regulated. We ended up with a bizarre system that these business owners could not navigate. And we are now in a situation where, because it wasn't just legalized outright, we are running into issues with commercial shops, uh, not commercial shops, but medical shops, and maybe an overpopulation of marijuana shops and shops that can't comply because they don't mm-hmm. understand the laws. Yeah. Well, and that was it was purposeful. The people made their right. voices heard and they made it clear that that's what they wanted, at least medically, for people to have access to marijuana and the legislature so that they could, well, and the governor's office, so that they could go in and bust these shops later. They could go in and raid them. They made it so that it would be very hard for them to comply. And that's what we're seeing now. And I think that's when you're not allowed to have an above board market, you get, you know, what would that be, 225 shops <laughs> that spring up in a city the size of Lansing. I think that that is probably more than what our city can support. But if you had a real open market, I think you would see some of those shops rise above the others and put other ones out of business. And we just can't have that right now because it's still being treated as a mostly illicit operation. Mm -hmm. Well, and the shops are totally handicapped at the outset because they are not treated as legitimate businesses. So they can't grow the way that other businesses can. They don't have the same access to capital. They don't have the same access to resources. Yeah, some banks won't take their money. There's like a whole legal battle over that right now. There's the discussion of credit cards versus cash. I think dispensaries... Most of them have to deal with uh, dealing cash, cash in Colorado, right? Right. That's not the way that businesses can really survive. Mm-hmm. So when we see the urban blight that people are critical of in Lansing, of too many marijuana shops, that's because they were not allowed to succeed from go. Well, and when you're running a cash-only operation, you're also opening yourself up to robberies and Mm -hmm. thefts and increasing crime in those areas that would otherwise be, you know, if you have a bunch of businesses open up in your community, that would normally be seen as a good thing. Um, But like you said, Evelyn, they're really putting them in a situation that's putting communities at risk. There was also, people are concerned about, it was in Ohio in the last election. They were trying to, or maybe not the last one, they were trying to pass recreational marijuana, but the group that was passing it was sort of a conglomerate of really uh, high dollar investors. And they were basically getting to cherry pick the language of the law so that only a few companies could be the producers of it. And it was these companies that would be in control of that. Um, They voted that down. I think people saw through it, which I was glad to see. They, you know, looked past uh, the short term gain of, all right, like weed's legal here now and could see like well this is going to be this is like creating a monopoly out of something that should be a a great new like business for everybody and the stigma around marijuana has made it self-fulfilling right so i'm sure a lot of these shops would like to you know put up a brick and mortar shop in a nice part of the community but because they are boxed out and because people still have these you know, antiquated notions about what marijuana is, um, you know, people don't have the same, like I said, access that they should. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. 
And there's also talks, uh, I've seen a couple articles about um, the possibility of banning marijuana drug testing for jobs. I think in Maine, they already passed a law that, uh, that law, and there's several other states now that are trying to pass laws like that. Um, I don't, and obviously I don't think they, um, that's included for, you know, people operating heavy machinery and stuff like that. Um, but it is sort of a push that's starting to happen to eliminate those sort of, um, drug testing practices and companies. Um, I think that that's wonderful because I know that in states where marijuana is legal, like my home state of Massachusetts, um, we just legalized marijuana in 2016. Um, and, um, the state was able to do it in a really great controlled way where we didn't run into any of those problems. And they said that only medical dispensaries could open up first. And then um, the first legal dispensaries haven't opened up yet. But when they do open up, they're going to be um, state controlled. So it's not going to be like private folks um, opening up their marijuana dispensaries. Um, and anybody who's listening can fact check me if I'm incorrect, but I think that that's how it works. But anyway, the point that you were making about drug testing, um, is that some of my friends and close folks to me, um, in their jobs, um, it's legal to use marijuana in the state, but yeah, it's an issue because some of my close friends and family at home in a state where marijuana is legal, um, you know, they, if, their profession might require them to have urine tests like uh, nurses, for example. And so even in a state where it's legal, um, these people can't, you know, in their own time, they are adults, smoke marijuana, and then two months later get drug tested for it. Um, because, you know, that's the problem is marijuana stays in your system for a while. So these people are being drug tested um, and some people are losing their jobs when they are great, Hardworking people, but again, the stigma around marijuana continues to persist, um, and people's lives are being negatively impacted by it. So, um, yeah, there needs to be clear lines drawn, especially in states like Michigan, where people don't know what they're doing, and so they're getting in trouble, and they don't even know what they're doing wrong, um, like businesses. And then on an individual level, with people who are technically complying with their state's law um, because they're smoking marijuana legally, but then at their job, it becomes an issue. Um, so... So, you know, it, those things need to be parsed out. And I think that with changing attitudes on marijuana, hopefully that will get figured out. But, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a mess right now. Mm -hmm. This is part of a larger narrative about drug use in our country and drug addiction. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention the opioid crisis mm -hmm. and how our backwards views on marijuana have potentially propagated this crisis that is... I'm truly the crisis of the generation. And of the Midwest, too. Yeah, it's affecting hundreds of thousands of people and killing people every single day. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you're seeing sort of a double standard with those two things for somebody, say, busted for selling marijuana and somebody busted for uh, selling or having prescription drugs. Um, because it usually is, you know, richer uh, white people that have those prescriptions um right and yeah i i'm sure the sentencing is not the same as well um and that's definitely a problem i think now it's probably like catching up like people are understanding that like if you get caught with opioids like that aren't prescribed to you 
you're probably not going to get off scot-free, but the problem is that they're being prescribed at all. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in the news every day now. For right. such a long time, people didn't really realize or didn't really think that it was as big of a problem as it was. It was sort of located pretty centrally in like the Appalachias and uh, places like that where this was really bad, and now it's spreading everywhere. But yeah, definitely something to to think about and important to mention in this conversation. Um, so as always, uh, on a lighter note, <laughs> we're going to get into a silver linings, what's going right, uh, kind of news story for the week. Um, and this, this week I think I've outdone myself. Um, but just to preface this, this story has some ups and downs. Um, so it, when it gets sad for a minute just hang in there it's it's pretty like disney disney movie like prepared for a roller coaster <laughs> yeah so first i'll just give you the the title of the news story and you can piece together some of it from the title well a lot of it from the title so the title of the article is michigan man takes pet cow on 2200 mile road trip <laughs> to save its eyesight i'm fully wow. bought in i'm bought in <laughs> <laughs> when is the disney channel original movie coming out uh, that's by the end of the story, I like, you'll think I'm going to be shocked if there isn't some sort of, uh, cartoon, something about this Pixar. This I'm already it crying a little. Uh, well, it's not a boy. <laughs> um, it's a man. It was, but, uh, it was a Narnia joke, but, uh, so this story, basically a, there was a Michigan man. Uh, it's his quest to help save his cow's eyesight, which ended up in a 2,200-mile road trip and vacation along California's Pacific Coast Highway and Malibu Beach. Uh, so this guy, uh, his name is Dan McKernan. He's 28, and he runs a, it's called the Barn Sanctuary at his family's farm in Chelsea, Michigan. Um, and this past October, his animal rescue took in a calf named Mike, <laughs> which is a great, I love animals that have people names. Um, so Mike the cow has cataracts, which is causing him to be totally blind in his right eye and was limiting his vision in his left eye to 50%. Um, but as it turns out, the calf was an ideal candidate for retina reattachment surgery, which would have, uh, restored vision in his left eye. Um, it's a, there wasn't a animal ophthalmologist in the area, and this isn't a procedure that had ever been done on a cow before so uh, McKernan called around the country uh, to find a doctor who would perform the surgery uh, and his only hit was a doctor in Pasadena California who wow. said that he would uh, attempt the surgery um, so how he got there was not you know you would picture that this would be in a a horse trailer or something like that no it was a van a big Econoline van because <laughs> the cow Mike, the cow, was more comfortable in there. He wasn't as anxious and nervous in the well, van with yeah. him as opposed to being in a trailer in the back. Young cow, he hadn't traveled. He hadn't, you know, not a worldly cow yet. Right. Hadn't flown, um, not yet. So I uh, went out there. The doctor performed the surgery. And the surgery was ultimately unsuccessful. Oh. Um, and hang in there. So, yeah, hang in there. So McKernan decided that he was going to take the scenic route home to allow Mike the chance to experience the world with his remaining senses. Can bring on the tears now. Okay, what does um, it mean that the surgery was unsuccessful? I don't think the cow can see anymore. Okay, uh, that's, what I, that's what I thought. At the, what point do they eat Mike? <laughs> God. Lauren's <For>, crying. <laughs> um, 
so he, he, uh, McKernan said, after the surgery, I decided to take my time to get back home. Uh, we stopped in Malibu, and I took him to the beach. That was pretty cool. <laughs> he could feel the sand and smell the ocean and hear the waves. Uh, and I was trying to trigger those senses. And after the stop in Malibu, they took to the Pacific Coast uh, Highway North, stopping in Berkeley and later at Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Oh McKernan camped out in the van on a cot next to Mike. <laughs> uh it, like he, he said, he noted that it was less stressful for Mike to travel in a van than in a horse trailer. Uh, so unfortunately, Mike is completely blind now. Um, but the seven-month-old calf now has a seeing eye buddy, another <gasps> calf uh, that McKernan rescued from a dairy farm because he wasn't nursing from his mother. But now the new calf and Mike are best friends. <laughs> and... He's an undersized cow, uh, but now they're buddies, and he helps uh, guide Mike around, and they help each other, and they're best friends. Only in greater Ann Arbor <laughs> would this story take place. Yeah. Uh, for the viewers, uh, uh, listeners out there, Lauren is actually crying right now. <laughs> we wish you could view it. It's going to be okay. But Disney movie, right? Yeah, wow. John, are there, are there pictures of the two cows uh, asking for research? There wasn't a picture of the seeing eye cow, but there was a picture of him with Mike. Um, it was do. a, It was an article on uh, Free Press. That'll do, cow. That'll mm-hmm. do. I think this is the plot of Cheryl Stryant's Wild. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I think you're right. Um, but yeah, I couldn't pass this story up. It's a beauty. Couldn't put it down. That was beautiful. Um, so also just a quick special shout out, uh, in a local, fl- another local flavor story. Uh, there was a Eastern Michigan student, uh, only named Andrew. He didn't give his uh, last name, but he had a, a friend take a picture of, uh, he filled a pothole with lucky charms and milk as a form of social <laughs> protest against the decaying roads in Michigan. I, uh, uh, I did respond going to that event on Facebook. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so the picture went, his friend took a picture and some Snapchats, and they went viral really fast across the country, and uh, really bringing some much-needed attention to uh, the crumbling infrastructure here in our home state of Michigan. Um, So, yeah, just wanted to give a special shout-out to him. I figured it was important. Um, But yeah, overall, really great episode, guys. Uh, Evelyn, really glad to have you here. Thank you, guys. this was a lot of fun. I, I relish any opportunity to talk about myself. <laughs> and we will end on that note. Uh, we will see you guys uh, back next week for another episode. Peace. Peace.